Well, our next episode has been delayed again because Non has acquired throat demons and sounds like croaky death. Show us, Nonny. Croaky death sounds like this. Exactly. So, like the good help meet I am, I am going to step in with a bit of a rant I've been stewing on for some time, and Non will sit beside me wielding the heresy fork, just in case. I forgot my heresy fork. Yeah. On True Magic, we've been saying the physical image is the spiritual for a while now. We've been saying that the physical world has meaning. And that can be a bit arcane, like what's something practically that you can do with that information? Well, one thing we can do is train ourselves to catch ourselves when we start thinking like the Enlightenment. And the key word that shows we're doing this is when we say, usually dismissively, about something someone else thinks is important, it's just, or it's only. You know, like, uh, hair is a big issue in certain circles. So if someone talks about whether women must have long hair, and how long that should be, or whether we should allow our teenage girls to dye their hair purple, or whether a boy can have long hair and how long that can be. And someone will inevitably respond in derision and frustration, guys, who cares, it's just hair. And what they mean is hair is spiritually irrelevant. You know, you're overthinking things, you're being hidebound and superstitious, just get over yourself and do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. And the trouble with that is, as Christians, we don't have the luxury of dismissing anything as just anything. To do that is to say that the physical doesn't image the spiritual, that the physical is random and meaningless. It's basically an evolutionary worldview. Even Satan didn't go that far, presumably because he had the wit to realise that unfallen Eve's intuitions weren't that dull. He didn't say it's just a bit of fruit. He said, yes, the fruit has meaning, but it's a different meaning than the one you think. And yet fallen humans do this all the time. We deceive ourselves into thinking conveniently that things are meaningless when we want them to be meaningless. Sometimes this is just an intuitive shortcut to saying... This thing is morally permissible and it's silly to get hit up about it. And that might be right. I remember at our film or church, we went through a brief kerfuffle when we brought in a PowerPoint system on a big screen for the hymns instead of, or actually as well as, hymn books. People were outraged. I believe a few threatened to leave. Now, on the face of it, this is ridiculous. And the immediate temptation is to say, dude, it's just a screen. Get over it. And in a way, that's a good intuition. Like, I really do believe that God doesn't mind if we look at words on a screen rather than a page. But by diminishing the objections... It fails to engage with the genuine symbolism of the thing which the objectors, however hidebound and reactionary, also genuinely intuited. For them, it wasn't just a screen. It was a symbol of slippery slope modernism. The hymns in a hymn book are fixed and chosen to fit with a church's theological views. On a screen, any hymn or song or chorus can be uploaded. A lot of these people had seen churches around them slide into liberalism and showy, shallow worship, and a desire to appease the youth at the expense of truth, and to them the projector was a harbinger of that. Harbinger? Harbinger. 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 And for others, I think it was an aesthetic thing. The idea that a real church has hymn books, you know, that looks wholesome and lovely and historical and what a church should look like, just like a church should have pews. We had a similar outburst of outrage when someone suggested swapping out our pews for chairs because a real church should have pews. And again there, our modern Enlightenment reformed reaction is to dismiss that as absurd. You know, we worship in spirit and in truth. God cares about our hearts, not about what we sit on or how picturesque our building looks. The content of the hymns is what matters, not the form, so it's irrelevant whether we use a screen or a hymn book. And the content of the service is what matters, so it's irrelevant whether we sit in pews or chairs. But even in cases where the conclusion might be correct, and again, I'm not arguing against hymn books or for them, I'm, I think there's genuine freedom here and, and practical considerations either way. But even when the conclusion might be correct, it is a lazy, shortcutty way of thinking that at worst denies the meaning of the material, and at best relies arrogantly on our intuitions of the absurd being correct and biblical, rather than, say, influenced by the spirit of the age. And which is pastorally more important, it just won't work to convince and unite the congregation. 
The hidebound reactionaries are correctly intuiting that what we do physically in a church has meaning. Deep down, we do all know this. And no amount of dismissal is going to remove those intuitions. They need to be acknowledged and traced back to their philosophical roots. And then those roots need to be compared to scripture. In the case of pews, you need to think seriously about the architectural language of churches and the historical and theological meaning encoded in it, and what would change if you changed it. Because once we start using it's just as a justification for dismissing something, we head down the road that leads to serving pies and coke instead of wine and bread for communion. I would add that serving grape juice and bread for communion is already further down the slope than we'd like to admit, but that's a story for another time. We enter the mindset of unbelievers who think it's hilariously arbitrary and absurd that Christians make an issue of silly things like nudity in movies. You know, it's just a breast, it's just a few square inches of skin, or, or fornication, it's just sex. Jonathan Swift, in Gulliver's Travels, writes a rather searing piece of satire on religious differences, using the analogy of a society split into those who believe boiled eggs should be cracked at the top end versus those who chose the bottom end. And his point was clearly that all religious difference is essentially this meaningless and hilarious from the point of view of the enlightened outsider who knows it doesn't matter. That is an easy road to go down. But it's not the road of the god who cared very much about the composition of the incense used in the tabernacle and denied its use in secular life. There was no it's just perfume attitude there. And God does not change. In the New Testament, he cared where people sat during worship. There was no it's just a seat, because in the language of the day, seat placement reflected concepts of honour and status and worthiness. It's common to deny that the physical has as much meaning under the New Covenant, but what that means is that under the New and Better Covenant, God somehow stripped the physical world of meaning, which hardly seems likely. What seems more likely is that in going from priesthood to kingship, from childhood to adulthood under the New Covenant, the Church now has the privilege and responsibility of meaning-exploring, even meaning-making. Whereas God told us exactly how to decorate the tabernacle, he left it to us to figure out how to best glorify him by decorating the Church, which is not at all the same thing as saying how you decorate the Church doesn't matter. Quite the opposite. Incidentally, the Puritans dealt with both of the examples I mentioned in their own way. When the Puritan religion was established in America, hymn books were very scarce, so for a long time hymns were sung by lining. So the guy up the front with the one hymn book the congregation owned would sing a line and the congregation would repeat it, and, and so on. It's the same thing recorded in Calpurnia's Black Church in To Kill Mockingbird, and done for the same reason, it was just cheaper. So when the colonies became more prosperous eventually, and printing technology increased, and the churches went, hey, cool, we can afford hymn books now. There was actually tremendous opposition from the congregations, who had been lining all their lives and felt now that it was the right way to sing, and that hymn books would encourage vainglory and individualism and so on. It was this scary modern innovation. So what does that remind you of? Projectors. Projectors. And similarly, pews were a big issue in Puritan churches. The church didn't come equipped with free-for-all seats. You had your own private boxed-in family pew, bought and paid for, and you could carve and furnish and decorate it as lavishly as you liked. It became this huge status thing. You wanted to jockey for position to get a pew as close to the front as possible. Now, I think after the distance of a few hundred years, we can recognise that that was disordered. What must it have meant for a traveller or a sinner who wanted to quietly creep in the back and listen? What must it have meant for widows sitting alone in the large, empty pew by themselves? Perhaps the Puritans would have been better off with folding chairs. So as a piece of advice for better thinking and better relationships, the next time you argue with someone whose view of the world is more restrictive than your own, don't say it's just. It's just means there is no meaning in the thing to which you are ascribing meaning, and you are ignorant and superstitious to think there is. Weirdly, this never gets taken well, and it deprives you of an opportunity to use your brain and re-examine your assumptions. The key to disordered meaning is not to abandon meaning, but to replace it with right meaning. Just like the key to bad police is not to defund the police. Thank you. Now, I want to use one other example that has been annoying me for a while, which I see a lot in Christian reformed patriarchal traditional circles, whatever we call ourselves, and it's the same thing in a different hat. 
And it's to do with the issue of women working outside the home. Important issue, significant, controversial issue, right? So it deserves careful, rational thought from a biblical worldview. But what I often see is an argument that goes like this. Feminists believe that a woman is liberated when instead of being the queen of her home, she is just stuck in a cubicle filling in forms all day. And this has been phrased in various ways. It's memes, it's all over the place. But the implication is always work at home, being a homemaker is real work, and work outside the home is meaningless, banal, trivial, deadening, busy work. It's filling in TPS reports, essentially. And whatever you believe about women working outside the home, I think this line of thinking needs to die because it's fundamentally wrong. It's really just the reverse of what feminists have been saying for years. They reduce the meaningful life of stay-at-home motherhood to the most meaningless or degrading tasks they can. You know, you don't want to waste that wonderful brain of yours stuck at home washing nappies and vacuuming the floor all day. Well, of course not, if you put it that way. But any mother knows that A, that's not all motherhood is, and B, even the menial tasks have meaning within the larger context of the mission. In fact, there isn't a job or hobby on the planet that doesn't have its unglamorous aspects. I, I like doing pottery. I don't enjoy cleaning up the pottery wheel afterwards, it's just part of the process. But if someone said to me, ugh, how You can like you? cooking. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not dwell. <laughs> but if someone said to me, ugh, how can you stand scrubbing clay off stuff all day, I'd think she was quite supremely missing the point of pottery. Now, I mean, there are certainly jobs out there that people find tedious and soul-destroying, maybe because they're badly suited to that job, or because the job has been taken over by bureaucracy and endless regulation, or whatever. It's absolutely not true that every woman with a job loves her job and finds it fulfilling. But a good argument against women working needs to address not only the miserable and disaffected, but the flourishing and happy. And there are women who do love their jobs. And what's more, there are women who should love their jobs. Not every job is meaningless. I have stay-at-home mother friends who used to be human rights lawyers, cancer researchers, nurses. Obviously those things are worthwhile. They're actively improving the human race. And even though I'm sure all those jobs had plenty of tedium and paperwork and petty managers, all that stuff, bad parking, you know, women very often stay in them for the same reason that men do, because the cause is worth the tedium. Or sometimes even because the camaraderie between colleagues is worth the tedium. A bad job with good co-workers can be a good job. So if your argument means trying to look into the face of a woman who spends her days helping stroke victims learn to walk again and tell her your job is meaningless and boring and stupid, well, that's just not a good argument. And there's a deeper problem with the argument, which is, if it is true, where does that leave men? Because someone has to do these jobs. Most jobs, even boring jobs, are necessary. The free market system ensures that most jobs are kind of vaguely worthwhile. Some are necessary because of a broken system, but even so, if pencils need to be pushed... You need to have pencil pushes. It has to be done. So if you take this reductionistic attitude to work, this it's just filling in forms, you either then have to say, but that's okay for men, because men are disposable entities, and we don't care if they're these bored, unfulfilled wage slaves. Or you have to say, well, if it's degrading for women, it's also degrading for men, and every man should be an entrepreneur. Nobody should work for someone else. No one should do anything repetitive or sedentary or unspectacular. And that is a great way to have society completely disintegrate. I can't even say we'd all return to living in mud huts because someone would actually have to build those huts and we're all kind of above that drudgery, aren't we? That's, you know, what we're trying to get out of. We would literally just be living off the previous drudgery of others until the systems they built collapsed within a few days and we started hunting each other for sport. That ends my rant. So to sum up, trying to convince people that things are meaningless will never work because when we care about something, we know it isn't meaningless. If someone has the wrong idea about the meaning of something, we need to replace it with the right meaning, not no meaning at all, and thirdly, because I need a third thing. Women should be allowed to work outside the home, provided it is not affecting their ability to care for their children and their husbands as scripture commands.
that. I wasn't even going that far. I was literally just saying this particular argument is rubbish. I think you can say a lot of interesting things about, you know, the concept of mission. If a woman has a mission, is that opposed to her husband's mission? How does that fit in? You know, there's interesting stuff to say. But the whole, it's literally just the whole, oh, it's dull thing that is wrong. And no. No. We can be better than that. Heresy fork skewer. Not, not me. This has been true magic. Kind of. Say something, say, say like the trailer guy does. In a world where Smokey runs the show and Nonny is her backup speaker, true magic dies.